Our scripture reading today is Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, death, who he was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, They found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning and uh, welcome. You turned your clocks forward. Good job. I'm Tom. And uh, we are really glad you are here this morning. You know, throughout the terrain of human history, people have marveled, have they not, at Jesus of Nazareth. I think of the brilliant physicist Albert Einstein who said these words about Jesus, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such a life. The amazingly gifted painter Vincent van Gogh also spoke of Jesus of Nazareth this way. He said he lived serenely as a greater artist than all other artists, despising marble and clay as well as color, working in living flesh. That is to say, this matchless artist made neither statues nor pictures nor books. He loudly proclaimed that he had made living men immortals. One of the most influential philosophers, Jacques Rousseau, expressed his thoughts this way and noticed his tension. As a modern, get rid of the miracles and the whole world will fall at the feet of Jesus. The social reformer, and religious leader of India, Mahatma Gandhi, put it this way. It's a bit biting. I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. Now, when you look across the pages of human history, you see many, many people marveled at Jesus. His teachings, his life. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered what it was that Jesus marveled at. What was it that stopped Jesus dead in his tracks? The brilliant gospel writer Luke, in his first century classic masterpiece, answers that question. If you brought a Bible, turn with me to the gospel of Luke chapter 7. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the New Testament. 
Now, as a church family across our campuses, we are exploring Luke's gospel. And it's a series entitled, Rediscovering Jesus. And I want to just suggest to you, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey this morning, whether you are checking out the Christian faith, you've been in church all your life, when we begin to rediscover who Jesus is, how he lived, what he taught, our rediscovery, no matter where we are in our spiritual journey, will profoundly impact us. Because when we encounter the real Jesus, we seldom remain the same. Rediscovering Jesus impacts us. Now, before we dive into our text, let us set the literary stage. We have noticed in this series, as an historian, the gospel writer Luke introduces this gospel that sets the context of his whole gospel. He opens this gospel reminding us that the words that flow from his inspired pen have happened in real-time space history. And up to this point in the gospel, we have encountered Jesus' birth, him growing up in Nazareth, his launching his public itinerant rabbinical ministry. Now, I want you to notice throughout the gospel that Luke frames Jesus of Nazareth in both priestly and kingly language. He explains Jesus, the prophesied Messiah of old in the Old Testament, has now come and he's ushering in his kingdom. This good news Jesus preached, the gospel of the kingdom, is shockingly surprising. And what is most surprising, it's available to all. We have just engaged in Luke chapter 6. And if you're here, you know that Jesus gives a sermon, a remarkable sermon about this kingdom he is now ushering in that is a world turned upside down. It's where the poor can experience the blessing of God, where the hungry can be satisfied, where the weeping can be joyful, where enemies can actually be loved, and outsiders can become insiders. Luke ends chapter 6 with a really important parable of tension. That is, he wants us to realize that it's easy to hear Jesus' words and not obey them. So now as we come to chapter 7, what you notice in the uh, opening verse is that Luke now pivots. He pivots in his gospel. It's a major pivot. He turns, and in verses 1 through 10, Luke's literary spotlight shines on a surprising hero that will make Jesus stop dead in his tracks. So the structure of these 10 verses follow this literary progression. First, the spotlight of his literary pen shines on this surprising hero. And then it transitions to the surprising hero's bold faith. First, the surprising hero. Now notice in verse 2, if you have your Bible open, which I hope you do, Luke introduces us to the main character. He's a military Roman officer, and he's described as a centurion. We're not told his name, but history tells us a great deal about his world. He commanded around 100 soldiers. We don't know where he grew up in the Roman Empire, but we do know this. He was given one of the toughest assignments in the entire Roman Empire. The remotest part of the region. And if we put it in the 21st century context, it would be like an American military commander in Afghanistan. A really important assignment, but a very difficult one. 
dangerous. And like in Afghanistan, many of the people of the day saw this military commander as the enemy. The Jewish people of northern Galilee, where the town of Capernaum is located, felt the heavy hand of Roman occupation on their daily life. And they deeply resented it. In fact, some worked to overthrow it. So, to many, this Roman officer represented virtually all that was bad in the world. But as we will soon see, Luke turns that perception upside down. He is anything but that. So as the story progresses, the focus is not on the centurion, it is on his household employee, we would say his servant. Luke tells us that he is sick and he's at death's door. Now the gospel writer Mark, you can look at this later in chapter 8, or Matthew, sorry, Matthew gives us more texture about this and says that this guy is paralyzed and he's literally suffering terribly. Clearly, at this point, all remedies have been exhausted. And it seems like a hopeless case. Yet the military officer has heard rumors of this Jewish rabbi that's a healer. So what does he do? Now, it's very important to grasp what he does. He doesn't try to make direct contact with Jesus, who he has never met, most likely. The centurion is a really astute chap. He knows he is an outsider Gentile, ensconced in a very insider Jewish world. Now notice in verse 3, Luke tells us the centurion seeks out a group of Jewish religious leaders. Let's not forget that Jesus spoke and taught in the synagogue at Capernaum. So Jesus is not a foreigner to them. They know Jesus. And this smart centurion's thinking, hmm. I know someone who knows Jesus. He's an astute sociologist. He knows how things work in the world, doesn't he? It's not dissimilar to our Monday world in our workplace. How do you get access to someone you don't know? You need a bridge. You need to find someone that you know that knows them. This is called networking. It's not a new brilliant strategy. This is what Luke is telling us. This past week, I found myself on a Zoom call. I I do quite a few of those. And uh, I love that technology because I don't have to travel. So I had on my schedule an appointment with a friend of mine in California, a longtime friend of mine, who just kind of popped up and said, can I have you connect with somebody? So he brings on this Zoom call a business leader from Milwaukee. Never met him before. And the purpose of the call, my friend in California, was to meet this national business leader because he's leading this large conference and wants to invite a friend of mine to speak. So how how does that happen? I was delighted to make the introduction, by the way, but it's like he, you know, my friend in California knows me. The business leader in Milwaukee doesn't know me. And you get the idea. We do this all the time. This is exactly what's happening in the first century. The centurion is really smart. And so 
he has his Jewish friends make a very persuasive appeal to Jesus. Look at verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, uh, this language is not manipulative. It's authentic compassion. They pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And by, by the way, he's the one that's built our big synagogue over here. You see it? Wow. Notice what these Jewish leaders say about this Roman military officer. Don't let it skip over your brain. This guy is viewed across the culture as the oppressor. Not only that, from a Jewish perspective, he is a goyim, a Gentile. But notice how he's presented. Do you see that? Is that stunning? Is that shocking? Not only that, he's a really wealthy dude. You talk about three strikes against you in that cultural context. Now, there's probably some things going on here. One, I'm sure this military officer who's wealthy and influential and powerful knows his cultural context and has probably tried to cultivate goodwill with his subjects. A sort of patronizing quid pro quo. Could be a little of that, kind of smart. But Luke doesn't let us really go there as the primary motivation. He opens our eyes to this guy's amazing heart. His primary motivation, we will see in the story, is that he is drawn to the God of the Jewish people. And he truly loves them. What is Luke doing? For the first time in his gospel, first time, remember I said there's a pivot. Luke shines the bright light on this guy. And he unveils before our stunned eyes one of, had to be, one of the most surprising heroes in the entire gospel. A Roman military officer. A wealthy one, no doubt. So what we have here is we have a surprising hero. But he's not just a surprising hero. What makes him most surprising is not just his love for God and the Jewish people. As we are going to see, it is this remarkable bull faith. Now notice how the story goes. Jesus, whatever he was doing, stops immediately what he's doing. That's the, the idea of the literary flow. Like, I'm sure Jesus was doing a lot of things. These guys come to him, and he stops everything he's doing and heads to the centurion's house. Wow. Now notice, the centurion hears Jesus is coming. Word gets ahead of him because Jesus is like a growing superstar. What the centurion says is the focus of this story. It's given proportionality and passion. Verses 6 through 8, look with me. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying, Lord or Master, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Notice. Therefore, I did not even presume to come to you, like into your presence. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I am too a man 
set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. I can sort of imagine him clicking his fingers. I don't know. Now think about this. Luke, most likely, it's a very strong confidence we have from history. Luke is a Gentile himself. The only Gentile writer in the entire New Testament. He goes out of his way to point out, early this gospel, the Gentile centurions, unmistakable display of authentic humility. But not only that, his exceptional cultural intelligence and his loving sensitivity. This Roman officer knows Jesus is a Jewish religious rabbi, for goodness sakes. And rabbis were committed to a life of ritual purity. Entering a Gentile's home would have been not only uncomfortable, it would have been unthinkable, a kind of religious defiling. Now, in the 21st century, in a broad, globalized, pluralistic world, this is hard for us to grasp. But if you travel around the globe, there are pockets where this really comes home. Many years ago, I learned it the hard way. I'll never forget it. One of my most embarrassing, tormenting moments. Liz and I did an extended graduate tour and study in Israel many years ago, part of our graduate work. And uh, we love living in Israel and living in Jerusalem, and uh, we love the rhythm of Sabbath Shabbat, which is the Sabbath on Friday. And uh, on one Friday, because we live right in the old city, one Friday afternoon, we wanted to go across the city and we didn't have a car. I, we didn't have Uber then, sorry. Um, we get on the city bus, as we did all, all that time when we studied there. And we started at the first part of where the bus starts. So the bus was almost completely empty. So we sit down in the front of the bus where you come on the bus. And as we were going through Jerusalem, the bus got fuller and fuller. And finally, we came to Mia Shreem which is the Orthodox Jewish community. And people were rushing everywhere with their bags and goodies to get ready for Shabbat, the meal. If you've been in places like that, you are armpit to armpit with people. It's a very fragrant experience. <laughs> I'll never forget this bus was packed. I was sitting down because I would got on the bus first. This precious elderly lady walks right like this, right in front of me, coming up into the bus. I'm sitting there. My mommy told me in Minnesota to do certain things when elderly women needed a seat. I mean, she had packages everywhere. So I'm sitting there. Instinctually, I start getting up. I don't know if you've ever heard Hebrew swear words, but that place erupted in disapproval. I barely made it this high before I thought, I better sit down. What was going on? In that cultural context, any man would never defer to a woman. It's an insult to her. Now, this is what's going on in this text. The centurion is having a bus moment. You got it? And this is why it's so shocking. So in verse 7, the centurion is saying to Jesus, it's not right for you to enter my home? 
it's not right for you to be too close to me. I don't want to put you in an awkward position. But I know this about you. The centurion knows who Jesus is. And he says, you don't even need to come to my home. Just notice the text. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Bam! Because he knew his level of rank and authority. His command is what mattered. Now let's not miss something important. Still with me? Let's not miss that Luke gives us insight here. The centurion's vocational work context as a military officer was the place that he got amazing spiritual insight, not from a Torah scroll. His Monday work was not a barrier to faith in Jesus at all. It was actually a bridge to faith in Jesus. It was his workplace that opened his eyes to faith. And this is true for you and me, isn't it? Our Monday work world, whether it's paid or unpaid, whether we are a retiree or a student, whether we are flipping burgers or flipping companies, is a primary place where we are formed spiritually and where our faith grows. God designed it that way because we spend a lot of time there. And hear me close, carefully. Faith not only informs our Monday world, our Monday world forms our faith. Hearing this Roman military officer's incredible spiritual insight is stunning. And he's, Jesus is stopped in his tracks. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I ever found such faith. Now, this is important to grasp. Luke is a brilliant writer. And he only, this word is only used once in his gospel, marveled. See it? In the original language, it's translated marveled in English. Mark, the gospel of Mark, uses it once, only twice in the New Testament. This is a significant marker. So what's going on? It's always, both times, rarely used. It's tied to belief or unbelief. Here, Luke uses this word to describe the stunning, surprising, amazing belief of a very unlikely person. A very unlikely person. A Gentile. A Roman military officer who is wealthy. On the other hand, the gospel writer Mark, in chapter 6, employs this word. Again, only two times in the entire New Testament. In this case, it is the shocking unbelief of the Jewish people in Jesus' hometown who should have believed. So both seeing unbelief where it is least likely and seeing belief where it is most unlikely stops Jesus in his tracks. Wow. Where belief and unbelief surface in the biblical text and in our context and life is often shockingly surprising. And bold faith grabs Jesus' heart and it turns Jesus' head big time. As he will do in his gospel, Luke will showcase, as we go through this series in this brilliant first century text, he will showcase surprising heroes of faith. I want you to watch for it. People in Jesus' first century context 
that no one would ever expect to have spiritual understanding of actually who Jesus is. And who are willing to place their complete trust in Jesus. Many of the religious people didn't see it. And many of the irreligious did. Isn't that shocking? And encountering the faith of this Roman military officer, Jesus will say, if I may paraphrase it, wow, that's it. That's the bold kingdom faith I'm talking about. You got it, pal. That's it. Now notice the structure here. Luke ends this text in an anticlimactic way. It is literally a kind of PS footnote. The centurion servant was healed. Of course. If Jesus is who he said he is. From a distance. Jesus just has to say the word and bam, it's done. So we are invited in such a remarkable way by Luke to look over this centurion's shoulder and through his heart to see Jesus. And it challenges us, y'all, to a lifestyle of bold faith. Faith is often misunderstood or superficially understood. What does faith mean? Let's just take a bit of an excursus and zero in, okay? Because it's so important to the Christian faith. The scriptures remind us in the book of Hebrews that without faith, it is impossible to please God. We're also told that we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, what this means from Genesis throughout the whole Bible is we were never intended to live within the suffocating confines of our finite human limitations. We were not created to live that way. We were designed to live within the context of an intimate relationship with God whose attentive presence, his infinite joy, and his abundant resources are available to us all the time. The key of bold faith in Jesus opens the door to these infinite resources and the deepest intimacy our heart longs for. And hear me carefully. Faith in Jesus does two big things. It empowers and enlightens. Faith empowers us for everyday life as apprentices of Jesus. And faith in Jesus is also enlightening. You know, you might read the Bible or hear this language. It's a great metaphor. The eyes of faith. Have you ever heard that? And that's really good theology. Because faith is anything but a blind leap. Faith in Jesus is the primary way we have access to all reality. Hear me carefully. Through the lens of faith, we see the world most clearly. Faith is never the last resort. It is the primary way we experience reality. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 tells us this great chapter of faith that they had the ability to see from a distance. I remember uh, hearing a story. I don't think it's apocryphal. I couldn't find the attribution, but I'm pretty sure it's true. So it seems, it should be, right? <laughs> but in 1971, Walt Disney, another Walt Disney, uh, opened up Disney World. Now, again, all good parents and Americans make their trip to Mecca called Orlando. It's awesome. It's truly awesome. Our, our kids did it, too. We did it. But the story goes, again, this is true. Walt Disney died before it was open, before it was completed. And uh, on the grand opening day, those who knew Walt really well were so sad that he wasn't there. 
And one of them looked to another uh, person who was opening up the park and said, isn't it tragic that Walt Disney didn't see this day? To which the other person looked at him and said, oh, yes, he did. Oh, yes, he did. This is the picture of faith. Faith is the lens through which we increasingly see as God sees. It's how we experience God's intimate presence in our life. So let's talk about faith. Luke gives us one of the most transforming primers of kingdom faith in Jesus in his entire gospel through this story. Through this story. Three characteristics for our reflection this morning on bold faith. First, Luke reminds us that bold faith is available to everyone. Everyone. Isn't it encouraging about Luke's story? We are reminded that anyone can boldly put their trust in Jesus. The young, the old, the rich, the poor, the broken, the hurting, the irreligious, and the religious. Isn't it tempting for us to think if we just had more faith, then somehow it would be great. Or if if we had more understanding about Jesus or Christianity, then we would have more faith. Now, understanding, or I will use a better word, information, not knowledge, information is good and important. But we must not miss something more important. The biblical text teaches us it is actually faith in Jesus that opens us to greater understanding or knowledge. It is not that greater knowledge brings greater faith. I give you a lot of examples of people who know lots of information who have no faith in Jesus. Brilliant people. It is that greater faith brings greater knowledge. Don't miss the order. As you reflect on your life this morning, you may be struggling with trusting God. It's part of the journey. You may find yourself this morning in a black hole of discouragement or a storm of doubt. That's a part of the journey. Bold faith may not come easy for you. You may feel like you don't have a lot of faith. Anyone relate to that? What is so awesome about faith and this story is it cements it in the fact it's not how much faith we have, but the power and goodness and glory of the one we place our faith in. It is not the size of our bold faith. It is the size of our awesome God that matters most. Tuck that in your heart and mind this week. You know, I think if we went back to the centurion, this Roman military officer, what a hero. And we interviewed him on the street and said, hey, are you a person of great faith? I doubt if he'd have said yes. What do you think? It wasn't how much faith he had. It was the little faith he had and where he put it. And the truth of this story comes to this intersection for your life and mine. Even a little faith goes a long way when it finds its way to Jesus. Jesus said to his followers, even this faith the size of a mustard seed, yo, that's really, really tiny, can move a mountain. Even little mountain-moving faith is available to all, to you and to me, to ordinary people like you and me. And it's the most incredible, powerful, transforming reality in the universe. Faith in Now, the unlikely story of Christ's community, some of you know this, shouts out this truth. 
Because we're not only individual people of faith, we're a community of faith. And actually, it's one of the greatest contagions there are. Full faith is like that. When Liz and I left Dallas now 31 years ago, to tell you, we, we were never giants of faith. Imagine, again, just beginning with just two of us in an apartment at 8963 Hauser Drive in Little Nexa. We had no congregation, no building, no financial resources. I remember a business leader calling me from Dallas after we arrived here, and he thought I was crazy anyway. And he asked me, now, where's your church? Where's your people? Where's your? I just had to say, I have no idea. And I thought to myself, you're right. This is stupid. But you know what? I went into this little bedroom, got on my knees, and I cried like a baby. So you know me, I'm a crier. But God gave us enough faith to take one more step the next day. And in three decades, God has continued to do a surprising work among us. One of our greatest heritage of this faith community is bold faith. That's been one of the continuous threads. We haven't got it all right. We haven't done it all perfect. But we are a people of bold faith in Jesus because we know who he is and his presence and empowerment in our life. Last Sunday, I had the joy, and I'm getting to this more across our campus, I had the joy of speaking at the Olathe campus. I remember, I think Ron and Judy are here this morning, but I remember Heritage Community Church and the first conversations we had, a, a very small band of people, pioneers, um, who are willing to trust God for an amazing work of God. And last week as I stood there, I thought, here's an example of kind of where, through several phases and where we are today at the Olathe campus. It's an amazing place. It's an amazing place and amazing people. God continues to bear amazing fruit there. I simply want to say Christ's community has always been and will always be about very ordinary people who are simply willing to trust God. Secondly, bold faith has confidence in Jesus. Notice the focus, just say the word and it'll be done. You and I can place our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior this morning if we haven't. Jesus came to earth, he died, he rose again, defeating death. He invites us to experience forgiveness and new life. It's the goodness of the gospel. You and I can have great trust in him. You can trust him for everything in your life because he is constantly with you. The apostle Paul had bold faith. Why? He writes to the Colossians who Jesus is. He is Again, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Let me ask you this question. If that is who Jesus is, do you think you can trust him with whatever you're facing this week? Every relationship you have, everything you're worried about at home, at school, at work, the money and economic challenges, the macroeconomic world challenges are shaking to the core right now. The wisdom you need for your job this week. Let me ask you, who do you think can best run your life? You or Jesus? That's an important question. The third characteristic of bold faith, it's available to everyone, places its confidence in Jesus. And it relies on Jesus' authority. I love this centurion because he understood how the universe worked. That is how bold faith works. Because of Jesus' absolute lordship over everything, we can trust him for everything. Every dimension of our lives. 
And we live in a time, isn't it true, where we question authority, and rightly so, there's a lot of authority that lets us down. But those who embrace bold faith in Jesus recognize and rely on Jesus' absolute authority over their lives. Bold faith informs and transforms every nook and cranny of our lives, and it leads to the most joyful, wholehearted obedience. What is perilously common today in the church of America is a convenient uncoupling of our faith in Jesus from our obedience to Jesus. Let's be honest. Many of us like Jesus. We may even marvel at Jesus. Or even the idea of having faith in Jesus. But perhaps not his authority over every part of our life. One of my favorite lunch spots is Panera. Just a Panera guy. Why I like lunch at Panera so much is because I don't have to decide. I can, you pick too. <laughs> Super salad, right? It's a great marketing ploy. The you pick two approach is great for lunch, but it's not great for faith in Jesus. Many of us have a you pick two approach. And the Christian faith of a you pick variety is a counterfeit faith. When it comes to Jesus and the teaching of Holy Scripture, not one of us here have the option to pick and choose what we like about what Jesus did, said, and calls us to, and conveniently ignore the rest. We do not have that option if we're on a premise of Jesus. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. This is really true. And Luke's closing words of Jesus' sermon in chapter 6 shadow his entire gospel. What are they? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? So in closing, let me ask you, where in your life are you not relying on Jesus' authority? Where is there a lack of wholehearted obedience? Perhaps it's a relationship you are unwilling to forgive or how you're treating your roommate or spouse or parents or how you're stewarding your financial and wealth resources. Maybe it's about running your business or the way you're treating your employees or fellow workers. Perhaps it's in the thoughts and expressions of your sexuality. And let me ask you the question that the Spirit of God grabbed me with this week in my own life. Tom, where is Jesus presently off limits in your life? Where is Jesus presently off limits in your life? What made Jesus marvel? <laughs> We're not left to doubt, are we? What made Jesus stop in his tracks? bold faith. Why? Because even a little bold faith goes a long way when it finds its way to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I think all of us wrestle with faith and trust. Lord, move in our midst that we would be a people who experience the full riches of the gospel. That we would follow Jesus with joyful obedience and faith. That we would be like this centurion where Jesus would marvel with joy of individuals and a faith community who are willing to trust him for anything. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.